Airlines Confidential with Ben Valdanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Aerodata, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. Aerodata is a Garmin company. Sidley Austin, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies. Visit sidley.com aviation. And Seabury Securities, global reach, global scale. SeaburySecurities.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at AirlinesConfidential.com. Don't touch that dial. This is Airlines Confidential, and I'm Chris Chimes. And I'm Ben Baldanza. Thanks for joining us. Chris, how's it going? Ben, all is good, but I'm going to dispense with the chit-chat because we've got a get to the news real quick and then we've got a great main attraction for this week's show an excellent conversation with sarah nelson president of the association of flight attendants so first up it's earnings season time as we record this only delta has announced its results for q2 united american and southwest and others are in the shoot but what was your take out of the news out of atlanta it was an interesting release for sure, and I think Delta has set the stage for themes that we're going to hear repeated, certainly as American and United release, but that we might hear through the rest of the industry. Those themes were pretty strong revenue results, but driven by lower volumes and higher fares. So unit revenue, or RASM as we call it in the industry, is good when compared to 2019, which is still the comparator for the most recent before pandemic time. And Delta you know, had higher RASM for the month, for a month in the quarter than the same month in 2019. But again, the way they got it, higher fares and lower volume is a bit of a concern, I think, if you're Delta, because how long can you keep that fare higher? How long can you stave off low-cost growth? Maybe we're in a real busy summer where many people who've saved up over the last couple of years and didn't travel are going to travel come hell or high water, right? And so as we get to the fall, it's unclear what, what that means. Second big theme was business traffic coming back, but still at around 70% of 2010 in terms of the amount of corporate travel. My concern has been for a long time that it's going to be hard to get significantly more than that as a percentage of 2019, at least until the world grows big enough to cover it, because there are certain aspects of travel that likely aren't coming back. Some of those being intra-company travel, a little less in trade shows and conventions, maybe a little less in commuting. The world has just changed in ways. So that's another theme, sort of the stickiness of the return of business travel. And the third big theme in Delta's release was just continued focus and pressure on costs. And we all know that 
there's lots of things going on with labor in the industry. And if you work in the airline industry in any role that requires a license or, you know, training or, you know, what you'd call a sort of a professional role, the odds are you're going to see a pay raise soon or sometime over the next couple of years. So that salary wages and benefits line is getting pressured at all airlines. And this is going to be true even in the spirits and frontiers of the world, right at every end. The business travel might affect the Americans and Uniteds and Delta more than the others, but the cost world is going to affect everyone. And so those three themes of Decent RASM, but driven by higher average fare and lower volume, which is a concern. The stickiness of the return of business travel and pressure on costs largely led by the labor line. Those were the three big things in the Delta earnings. Now, not to lose sight of things, they've got a lot of cash on their balance sheet. They generated a lot of cash. They made earnings for the quarter. So they had a lot of positive things in their earnings. But of those big themes, all of them, to some extent, are concerning for the industry going forward, I think. And and so I'm eager to hear what American United say, and not only what their numbers are, but the tonality of which how they talk about these big themes. Well, as you talk about costs, you know, that was the miss pretty much was high fuel costs and then the unexpected operational costs. Ed Bastian was very transparent in saying we had a rough six weeks, although they tried to then kind of go right to the start of July and things kind of leveling off. There was one little nugget in there that I started to see more chatter on when they were talking about operations and staffing and the like. The Delta folks said they'd recovered to like something like 95% of the staffing level from 2019 pre-pandemic levels. But then the airline was only operating at 82% of 19 capacity. So in other words, a nearly fully staffed Delta is operating kind of 20% below their 2019 capacity pre-pandemic. How do you kind of square this in the context of why the operation was so out of kilter when they should be staffed to the lower levels that they're flying? Well, it is really interesting. What it tells you is that you can't just look at the numbers of people, but who are the people that are missing from the 2019 piece, right? What they saw, like most airlines, is challenges in pilots, a little bit in mechanics. And those are areas that it's just hard to recover quickly from if you're weak and hard to replace quickly if you're short. So Delta, like the rest of the industry, has had to pull down capacity for operational reliability, even as they've been pretty successful getting their airport workers and their call centers and things like that staffed up. Yeah, I guess uh, the the downfall of having a lot of rookies uh, on the payroll, it's going to take a while for their uh, knowledge and, and their experience to kind of ramp up to the level of the operation. Ben, 
I'm going to throw another one of my what would Ben do questions that I like to use at you. Last month, President Biden reversed some of the travel restrictions to Cuba imposed by Donald Trump, which were reversals of policy initiatives by President Obama. So we're kind of back to the future. Uh, American Airlines was the first out of the gate to request the reinstatement of air service rights to fly to five destinations in Cuba from its Miami hub. They got that approval last week. Now we've got a president who is weak in the polls and a volatile political landscape with no guarantee this policy will stick beyond 2024. No other carriers have really been as aggressive as American to get back into the Cuba market. Would you take this same approach or be more cautious? Chris, I think I'd be much more cautious for a couple of reasons. When Cuba, quote unquote, opened up before, everybody rushed into Cuba and no one made a dime. There were lots of flights going into lots of cities over that beautiful island. Some worked better than others. But I think when the restrictions came again, there were airlines who were sort of happy that they could pull out and blame the government that we can't do this anymore, rather than we just put way too many seats there. Now, American operates a hub in Miami. They're the only airline that does operate a hub in Miami. Miami's probably the single largest, most popular destination for Cubans to come visit or for people to go visit Cuba. And so if you're the carrier with a hub in Miami, if anyone's going to be aggressive, it should probably be you in getting back to Cuba. So I don't blame American for this. But I would be more cautious. And I don't think you'll see all the carriers who started putting flights back into Cuba when it opened up last time, doing that again. I think they're going to be much more cautious. I would be more cautious. This whole idea that, well, if we fly now, even if it gets restricted again in 2024, everyone will remember that we were there and we served it. I think that's complete bunk. In 2024, if those flights go away, when they come back again in 2025 or later, who's ever got the flights at the right time at the right price is going to get the traffic. So bottom line, Chris, I'd be more cautious. I don't think the market is ready for as much growth as the industry tried to put in last time. But if any one carrier is going to do it, why not the one with the Miami hub? Yeah, I thought you were going to take that kind of approach. I mean, it looks like an offensive move, but I really think it's more defensive to protect the Miami hub, protect the, their market there and their position, kind of scare a few people out of the markets and the routes and uh, just kind of flank uh, the island with as much service that makes sense. Um, and, you know, they can always, you know, pull back or move forward going, going, going forward. But um, it, it's kind of interesting. Nobody else kind of has stepped up. You know, Chris, at some point, Cuba would just be a terrific destination for U.S. people to visit. It's so close. It's so easy to get to. There's so much affinity between the two countries in lots of ways. But to get beyond visiting friends and relative traffic, 
meaning going there to be on one of their beaches versus a Dominican beach or a Puerto Rican beach or a Mexican beach or something. There's just going to have to be a lot of infrastructure created in Cuba, and that's going to take years. Right. And I think while the charm and the adventure of visiting Cuba attracted a lot of people initially, you know, when you can't use your credit card and you can't get cash from an ATM and there were so many other restrictions in the travel process. I don't think people were as charmed as they thought they were going to be. Yeah. You know, I visited Havana when I worked for Taka because Taka flew from Central America to Havana. And what some people call charm, other people would call run down, right? And there's, there, there are two sides to the same coin, The charm that I saw was almost a sadness and a frustration of how beautiful the place could be with maybe different leadership. And that's sort of what I saw as the charm there. Well, with that, Seabury Securities, a Seabury Capital Company, is a specialty finance and investment banking firm boasting a 25-year track record of advising aviation clients around the world. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at SeaburySecurities.com. This week's show is also brought to you by Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is delivering industry-leading sustainability, mature dispatch reliability, and world-class operating costs. Now with the GTF Advantage engine for the Airbus 320neo family, the best is getting even better. Learn more at pwgtf.com slash advantage. And if you haven't yet listened, please download episode 144 of Airlines Confidential and listen to our discussion with Pratt's Chief Sustainability Officer, Graham Webb, to learn more. Chris, I'm going to ask you to put on your DC hat for a minute and give us your thoughts on some of the recent regulatory actions by the U.S. Department of Transportation. Well, Ben, I know you've been somewhat critical of the lack of attention Transportation Secretary Buttigieg has shown towards the airline industry, although although the industry generally likes it when the DOT leaves them alone, except when it's their priority and then the industry wants things implemented. But you can't have it both ways, but a couple of thoughts. After a protracted rulemaking process, DOT finally issued an Airline Passengers with Disabilities Bill of Rights. That's certainly a good thing long overdue, but in my mind, DOT kind of fumbled the ball on a critical matter, providing better access to aircraft lavatories for passengers with disabilities. There are some guidelines for double-aisle wide-body aircraft, but single-aisle aircraft operated by U.S. airlines remain largely inaccessible for passengers with mobility issues. It looks like the industry's fingerprints are kind of on this outcome, getting some ideas tabled or out for more comment. And I get the reluctance, if not the downright opposition, by the carriers to require a retrofit of the fleet. But there are some solutions that could easily be standardized moving forward. Frankly, the drive by the industry to squeeze in more seats has made lavatories difficult to access for lots of people, even those with full mobility. 
Uh, I'm not going to get into what I think about the new generation 737 labs, but I'll be honest, I think the industry needs to deal with this in a more constructive manner. The DOT also issued a directive to carriers, stop playing games and start allowing children to sit next to their parents at no charge. Frankly, this shouldn't have had a happen like it did with the DOT action. Airline revenue management executives should have figured this out on their own. So when airline CEOs complain about overregulation, they need to look inwardly at things that they do and defend, which are blatantly abusive to customers, like separating parents and children. You don't walk into a restaurant and are told your children will need to sit at another table. So I'm not quite sure why airlines think that was okay, but am I being too harsh? I don't think you're being too harsh, Chris. I agree with you. I'll talk about these in the reverse order you did. I agree with you on kids sitting with parents, certainly younger kids. The question is, what is the right age to say as long as the airline is transparent about selling seat assignments, at some point it might be okay to say, well, pay to sit together and sit together. But for younger kids, I absolutely agree this makes sense. No one wants a young child sitting on their own without their parents. On the labs, I don't think you're too harsh on that either, although I'm less optimistic about what can be done here. The more you make a lab accessible, which is a really good thing, the only place to get that space is from where paying passengers sit, pretty much. That means taking seats off planes. That means raising fares for everybody else who's still on the plane. And that may be the right answer. Or maybe the answer is don't have two labs, have one lab, but make it really accessible to anyone, even those with mobility issues. I think the issue of making labs accessible for people with mobility issues in a way is like the we just talked about with the kids, meaning how immobile could you be but still be able to use the lab? I think there are levels of this and it's just much tougher to come up with a good answer for this one. Years ago, Chris, I met the then president of Tiger Airways, which operates in Singapore. And he was telling me that they stairboard all of their customers. This was, you know, 15 years ago. And he said, we don't have any jet bridges. And I said, well, what do you do about someone who can't walk up the stairs. And he looked at me, now this was a Brit who was working in Singapore, and he looked at me and said, if you can't walk up my stairs, I don't want you on my airline. And I said to him and said, I'm so glad I live in a country that doesn't think like that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And so the point is, like around the world, people are going to have different sensitivities to these things. I would like people who are less mobile to have more access 
to the lavatories on planes. I think it's a tough problem to solve in terms of where you draw the lines around that. But certainly getting back to the kids sitting with parents, of course they should. And I agree with you. This is something that airline managers stop this regulation from happening by just doing the right thing in the first place. Well, and I was reading Collins, and there are a couple of manufacturers who have some better solutions with the labs. And it's really kind of, and someone was saying Spirit actually has a, a good configuration that provides a, I wouldn't call it a spacious laboratory, but a more accessible laboratory. So I think there are solutions out there. And again, I don't think anyone is suggesting complete retrofits of aircraft, but I do think we need to kind of move forward with some better designs and maybe the manufacturers can, can, uh, lead that conversation. You know, Chris, there has been a lot of energy around new seating ideas for a while, including double-decker seating in planes, thinner seating, butterfly seating, all kinds of things, because people have realized, hey, if I can find ways to fit more people on the plane and yet keep them somewhat comfortable or give them a chance to sleep even when they're in coach or something, then there's potentially a market there. I would hope that all the energy and creativity that's gone into creating seeds could think about this problem too. Because my guess is if smart people who understand the engineering of planes and the way things really fit put effort and energy into saying, let's create a lab situation on narrow body airplanes that works better for less mobile people. My guess is you could come up with some pretty good answers. Yeah, I'm, I'm guessing too. Well, before we get to our interview, I just want to make one other comment about the other major news item in U.S. industry right now. As we've talked about, Ben can't really address the Spirit JetBlue Frontier situation, given his role on the board. But as people are following this, they know that Spirit has delayed for a fourth time a shareholder vote. Uh, one of the major investor shareholders uh, groups has reversed itself again and come out in favor of the JetBlue offer. And as people also know, Frontier has basically said, we've made our final and best offer. You know, it's clear Frontier is not going to do this deal at any cost. And that's certainly their right. It's unclear what the final outcome will be. Spirit might, Spirit shareholders might reject all the offers and try to go it alone again. Although I think that's doubtful. I think one of the challenges personally from watching this though, is that if Frontier has consolidation uh, ambitions in the future, they're going to have to get over the ex the belief that they kind of lowballed and tried to get away with a undervalued deal, and the burden is going to be on them to prove whatever they might propose in the future on any type of consolidation is a strong offer and not a under undervalued offer because that's that's kind of the perception right now is that they they came in with a offer that undervalued the deal compared to what JetBlue did, and then they didn't move a lot off of it um, to be competitive. So we'll watch the space at some point. Ben can talk about this, and we look forward to that. Don't go away. We'll be right back with AFA President Sarah Nelson. 
Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Sidley Austin, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies transforming the skies. From the ramp to the boardroom, Sidley provides the broadest range of legal services to clients on the most critical issues facing our industry today. Sidley combines the unmatched experience with top-tier capabilities across a vast global footprint. Visit sidley.com aviation for more information. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by AeroData, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. AeroData is a Garmin company. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. So at least once a week we get emails from our listeners saying, you need to bring on some labor leaders. We need to get another point of view. And uh, we're happy to say we have probably the top labor leader in the airline business with us today. Sarah Nelson is president of the Association of Flight Attendants, and we're thrilled to have her with us. Sarah, welcome to Airlines Confidential. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate that. We always ask our guests to give a quick self-introduction about uh, what they do and really how they got into the airline business, if you'll do that for us. Okay, let me try to be quick. So I'm the president of the Association of Flight Attendants. I'm still uh, on the seniority list at United Airlines, keep my credentials up to date. But this is full-time work, and I have been a union flight attendant for almost 26 years now. When I started flying, I was planning to be a teacher, and I was I had just finished up my student teaching, and a friend of mine called me from a beach in Miami when I was in St. Louis on a very snowy February day. And uh, she teased me about the fact that she was in Miami because we had laughed that she was going to go be a flight attendant. We didn't really know what that meant. And she said, hey, you know, I could razz you all day, but also I'm calling to tell you this job is no joke. And she started to describe the pay and uh, the flexibility and the pension that was uh, in place at the time. And I was working four jobs in snowy St. Louis and looking at starting as a first year teacher the following year, setting up my classroom. And I wasn't really sure how I was going to make ends meet. And I got in the car the next day and drove to Chicago, interviewed with United Airlines and set off on my flying career. And there were two major events that happened uh, between then within the next five years. The first was uh, the airline failed to pay me and a flight attendant actually helped me out when I was in a pretty desperate situation, wrote me a personal check and told me to call the union. Uh, And I did call the union, got the paycheck the next day, and uh, the union then asked me to get involved. And it was about five years later that the events of 9-11 happened and Flight 175, United Airlines Flight 175 that flew into the South Tower of the World Trade Center was a flight that I worked frequently. I knew everybody on board. And um, while we were uh, grieving the loss of our friends, um, we were also headed into bankruptcies. And it, it changed uh, my whole experience and, and got me really uh, committed to doing this work for the rest of my life because I saw that even in crisis, there are pe- people who were looking to take advantage of us. And so I wanted to fight back and wanted to get to a place where we could fight forward. Well, you've done some amazing things, and we'll talk about some of those. But let's talk about just the last couple of years. It's been very tough for flight attendants, especially with 
the way passengers have behaved and maybe inconsistent rules on masks and such. How would you characterize the workforce now? We're reading all about teacher burnout and nursing burnout. Is there flight attendant burnout too? Oh, for sure. Uh, I mean, it has been a couple of really tough years. And I got to say, the industry is standing. I, I give full credit to our union because we were not going to allow uh, the bankruptcies to define the, the next 20 years of the airline industry. Uh, and so we've worked actually with the airlines on the payroll support program and got 16 months of payroll support from the federal government and uh, kept our airlines intact and kept our jobs intact. And um, so it's good that we had that foundation, but, uh, you know, flying was not easy. It changed a lot. Uh, flights were pulled down. A lot of people can't afford to live where they're based. So they were commuting to work with on fewer flights. Flights were filling up. Uh, it was mostly first time flyers who were on our planes. So we didn't have any of the business travelers or regular travelers who kind of, uh, help us with a follow the leader um, sort of atmosphere. So we were answering a million questions and, you know, people were stressed out from the pandemic and they were taking it out on flight attendants and incidents of, of uh, air rage were at an all time high exponentially. A lot of people wanted to set the narrative that that was about the mask mandate, but frankly, the most violent uh, events had nothing to do with masks at all. It was about people who just didn't want to follow any kind of authority or leadership. So it's been it's been really, really tough. And the conditions at work with staffing at minimums and people really stretch thin. And I'm not just talking about flight times, all the people that we work with, the pilots, the gate agents, the mechanics, the people who push the wheelchairs, frankly, when we're understaffed on that, I can't tell you what it's like to be done with a long flight and then have to sit there for a long time waiting for the last passengers to get off because federal mandates require that we stay on the plane until everyone's off. And so if you don't have that staffing on the plane or in the airport, everything can get slowed down and can mess with your day. And, and people are working longer days than ever before and not getting the same kind of respect um, or uh, time to enjoy it that they used to. Yeah, I was on a flight a couple of months ago and you know the, the door opened and the lead flight attendant cheerfully said, I got 11 wheelchair passengers. <laughs> and the agent just looked at her and said, well, I got zero wheelchairs. So I was like, oh God, yeah. um, that's going to be a long, uh, yeah. long term. So, you know, the media coverage of unruly passengers and that topic seems to have dissipated a bit. Is the problem getting better or is the media just getting bored with the top? Well, every time there's a big event, uh, the media is going to cover it, but they're going to look for that sensational video. Uh, I don't know that the media has moved on from this necessarily. I think that what has happened is now we are starting to get some of these prosecutions um, and, 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 the public typically takes notice. I mean, well, that's what we were saying. That's why we were pushing the DOJ so hard to prioritize this because it takes time to move through the justice system. And we knew that the fines weren't working, the um, you know peer pressure wasn't working, the communications wasn't working. I shouldn't say it wasn't working at all, but it wasn't enough to curb this. And our efforts to talk about alcohol, there was not real support there either from the airlines or the airports to help us out on that. But what has happened is that people have gotten the word that if you act out on an airplane, um, there's going to be severe consequences. And that really didn't get through until you started to see some of these sentencing. So hopefully the events are starting to come down a little bit. 
It is the, you know, but we're in the summer and the operational meltdowns make people very frustrated and agitated. And they think that it's all the airline's fault and the airlines contribute to it. But um, a lot of times what happens in airports and not being able to have your flight leave is not necessarily the airline's fault, but they think it is. And the first person that they see who works for the airline is going to hear about it. So it's going to be a long, hot summer and really tough. I do think, though, that the word is starting to get through that there are severe consequences if you act out on a plane. The media went crazy on covering that. And I think that they will cover it again if they have a sensational video. But I think that we've made some big headway. Well, let's hope you're right that that message has gotten through. As we look back on the last couple of years, and I don't want to spend too much time looking backwards, but with hindsight, is there something you think the federal government could have done better than they did to help manage this situation? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. I mean, this was set up from the beginning to play out in a combat zone on our planes because the whole pandemic was politicized. So good communication leads to good good decisions by everyone, by leaders, by people who are just trying to follow the rules. And frankly, as flight attendants, we know that the vast majority of the public comes to the door of our aircraft with kindness in their heart and a desire to have a safe, uneventful flight. And if you can lift that up and give people good information about what they can do to protect themselves, um, to have a safe, um, efficient experience, then everything is going to go better. It's sort of like when we have a creeping delay and when we have a flight deck that doesn't update people or people on the ground who are not giving us good information to be able to update people, they are angry as hell and they take it out on us. And when we update people, I've seen, you know, six hour delays where people are getting off hugging each other. You know, they're happy because they were kept in the loop. And and that is the exact opposite of what happened during this pandemic. And so it starts at the very beginning with that good information. Now I could go into a whole set of other things, but that is foundationally the biggest problem. So Sarah, what's your sense of the overall health of the flight attendant workforce right now since the mask mandate huh. was dropped? I mean, has there been a higher incident of sick calls are people getting sick or is it about the same or what I will what's tell you, what I will tell you is that, um, you know, people are getting sick and people are getting sick who haven't gotten sick for two years and who were vaccinated and boosted. And I should say, you know, good for the vaccine because I got COVID before we had a vaccine and it was three weeks of hell and then an extended period of some sort of long COVID conditions. And now I think people are getting through it in a couple days. So that's good. But, you know, when they're supposed to be covering a four day trip and they can't come in for that, that's uh, that has an impact on the operation. And when they've been wearing masks the whole time themselves and have continued to wear it even after the mask mandate dropped. But now is when they get covid. I think it's pretty clear (laughs) what happened there. Are you seeing uh, flight attendants wearing masks? I don't see it a lot, but um, what's your sense? Are people starting to wear masks a little bit more with the latest uh uptick in cases? I, uh, so this is pretty anecdotal. Um, I think that, you know, some people took it off right away. They were so happy. They're like, I can breathe. I can, you know, see my face. 
they saw their friends, <laughs> some of their friends get sick. Uh, they saw the cases rise. Some people put it back on. Some people decided I'm going to do a hybrid. I'm going to take it off when I'm working in the galley. And when I go out to serve the passengers, I'm going to put it on because uh, I'm going to be closer to people. Um, so there's there's really a, a, a hybrid of how flight attendants are addressing this. But, but many have not taken those masks off and have continued to wear it all day long. You know, my anecdote, Sarah, in the flights I've taken, I always talk to the flight attendants, ask them how they're doing, asking how the company's treating them and such. And then I've asked them all, what do you think about the mask mandate going away? And almost universally, what I've heard is that they've said they're happy it's gone away because it lowers the temperature in the plane. That's the word one of yeah. them used. Yet probably half of them who said that were still choosing to wear a mask. <laughs> yeah. You, yes. I think that you summarized it very well. That is sort of the mood of the entire workforce. And it varies. Each individual has a different view, but, but you're right. They were really tired of being the mask police. And our, our government from the very beginning made that very difficult on them. And yeah, outlets like Fox News didn't help. Well, if there's another public health crisis in the future, which we all hope there isn't, of course, or something, do you think the traveling public might react a little better and adapt given what's happened? I'm really concerned. You know, I have dealt with communicable disease outbreaks in my 26 years as a flight attendant. And typically we look to the public health officials for instructions and we followed those to a T. And I think that there's been an erosion of public trust, even in our, our public health officials and in the whole process. And I'm concerned about how we're going to respond to the next pu public health crisis. Well, as I said at the top of this discussion, you very well might be the most well-known labor leader in the U.S. right now. Talk to us about the responsibility that comes with that. And also talk to us as a female leader. Do you feel like you still encounter pockets of resistance to your authority? <laughs> to my authority? No. <laughs> but uh, in general, yeah. Um, uh, let me start with the responsibility. I am the president of the Association of Flight Attendants. We represent, oh, and I'm getting a call right now from Julie Hedrick, who is the president of the Association of Professional Flight Attendants, who I work very well with. Um, but we represent flight attendants at 18 different airlines, 50,000 flight attendants, and we have a staff that matches that size of union. But when people look to me to lead the labor movement to you know, respond to issues that are happening anywhere else. And I feel like I have a responsibility to do that because I know very clearly that I can't take on the issues that flight attendants really care about if we don't have a strong labor movement. So I don't see that as some, you know, supporting other unions, supporting workers to organize. I see that as central to the work that I need to do to help support flight attendants. But I also feel an incredible responsibility to be out there and, and be ready to act for people and to show people leadership and and to be able to provide people with a, 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 a way to go forward um, because there's not a lot of that <laughs> going on anywhere. Um, and that is, um, you know, it's 24-7 and um, a girl's got to sleep once in a while. But in terms of being a woman, you know, I think it, it goes hand in hand with leading the flight attendant union. No one, and, and I've had various people who've been in the airline industry for a long time call me up and, and say, Sarah, I just, 
I just never expected that the flight attendant union president was going to be leading the industry or leading the labor leaders or whatever. And um, they say it sort of with awe. And I, I don't know if they know, like, that could have been taken as offensive. I get what they mean. I mean, people dismissed us. They dismissed our whole union. And that was because it was identified as a primarily female job. It was objectified. It was, um, we were cast aside. We had other unions saying that they didn't want to sit with us on the boards of, of airlines and uh, opposed us being in employee stock ownership plans because of it. So those are the kinds of things that we've had to break through over the years. And I feel like, you know, I feel like we're doing that. And it's pretty great to be recognized as leaders. And people are looking to flight attendants as leaders in the cabin and recognizing them in that way right now when they talk about us. And our, I hear from our members all the time who say, wow, you know, we know it's because of our union that we're on the evening news every night and our issues are being heard and people are talking about us with respect. And that is a huge change. And that change has only really come in the last several years. And it's, it's still hard to fight through uh, the sexism that exists. But frankly, I don't think about it a lot because I don't have time to think about it. Um, and I'm not asking anybody if I can be somewhere I'm going to be there. And approaching that has um, been really important to be able to do the work that I do. And I have to thank my parents because my parents never taught me to believe that I was any less able to go into a room because I was a woman. And so silly me, I didn't know any better. And here I am. Well, that's why you're perfect for this role, Sarah. <laughs> you know, let me throw a bit of a curveball at you. There was a famous book written called Freakonomics, and it's these two econ economists who talk about all kinds of things. And on one of their shows, they had a whole big discussion about why we don't tip flight attendants. So assuming it didn't change anything about flight attendant base pay, would you support that if an airline started saying to customers, feel free to tip your flight attendant? No. <laughs> and here's why. We are aviation's first responders. Our primary role is safety. We're there for everybody's safety and comfort. When you start talking about tips, what am I going to do? Say, if there's an emergency, okay, I'll put you closer to the door so we think you have a better chance of getting out. We're not in a position where that's a good idea. And then beyond that, I know that you said this wouldn't change the base pay, but our experience and labor is that when you have a tip position, what happens is that that starts to slip. So then you move more into a place of, okay, are you pleasing the passengers or not? And we have to instruct the passengers on what to do to keep themselves safe. We're required to do that. We're required to do that under federal regulation. And so what's going to happen? So that passenger doesn't like that I told them to put their seatbelt sign on. So then they're not going to tip me. So it leads to a whole set of problems in terms of undermining safety, but it also leads to potentially the erosion of our pay. And it leads to, in many cases, a lot of sexual harassment that goes unreported um, because people are trying to work for those tips. Two words, Sarah. Brilliant answer. You know, we're in we're into the summer. Uh, how are your members feeling about summer and summer staffing and the operational challenges? Mm. Um, they're they know it's going to be a long, hot summer. Um, they are super upset. 
I think the thing that we're hearing the most right now is that they've been through operational challenges before. We're flight attendants. Hello. We know what happens when there's a few raindrops. Okay. But what is not acceptable is having to sit for two, three, four. I saw one the other day, 12 hours on the phone waiting to get through to the crew desk to get our next assignment, to get what hotel we're going to, to get where we're going to tomorrow and violations because it's so chaotic and they're just trying to staff the operation. Um, and, and this is a bigger problem at Delta because they don't have a contract. And so the schedulers there don't have a set of rules that they have to follow, which frankly is a good roadmap at almost every other airline. Not to mention the fact that, you know, Delta has run a pretty good operation for a lot of years. And I think the other airlines are better able to uh, deal with meltdowns because they've been through it a few times. But flight attendants are really upset about not having that back end support. And, you know, if you hire one um, person on the crew desk, that can support hundreds of flight attendants. Uh, and that's just not happening. There's been cuts on staffing across the board at airlines, and they really need to look at where they can staff up very quickly to support the operation. Because if a flight attendant doesn't get his or her uh, assignment, guess what? We're not going to be helping to get that flight out. I mean, it is inefficient for the airline as well. Well, Sarah, you've been fantastic. Before you go, we have to ask you a question that's been dominating this show for a couple of weeks. Is there a pilot shortage or isn't there? <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, you know, um, I have been told that there are more pilots in this country than there ever have been who are licensed, and they're simply not wanting to do the job because the job is not something that people are attracted to. I think there's something to be said for that. Sure, we do not have enough pilots to run the operation who are actually applying for the job. So let's be clear, there's not enough pilots to run the flights. There's not enough pilots who are trained up to run the flights either. And and let's not forget, there were some uh, dual aisle aircraft that were put on the ground during this pandemic that now we've got to get flight pilots recertified because they didn't get the flight hours in order to keep up, up their certifications either. So there's a lot going on here. But we also have to recognize that for the last 20 years, uh, we have been basically coming off of the crises of 9-11 and all of the all of the fallout from that. And we didn't have the kind of generational narrative that was coming from one generation to another about what an amazing job this is. And so that is a huge problem too. And I think that, you know, that the pilot unions are trying to fix that. I think that there's a lot of people who have a lot of opinions here. And I'm just going to close out with, we're all going to miss Elise Eberwine. (laughs) (laughs) It's her last week, I think, as we're recording this. I think think that's right. And so, so, um, I I would agree with that statement. (laughs) Good. Well, Sarah, we knew, uh, you wouldn't hold back and you didn't disappoint us. And that's why we wanted you to join us. And we're glad you spent some time with us and hope we can uh, get you back at some point in the future. Cause I don't think these issues or future issues related to the industry or the flight attendants are going to go away. I agree. And I don't think that your listeners have heard enough of labor from what you told me on the front end. So, you know, I'd be happy to come back. 
Well, that'd be great. And we'll try to get some more labor leaders on the show as well. You've provided some terrific insights for the listeners. Thank you so much for being here, Sarah. Thanks so much, Ben and Chris. You guys are great. We'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Sidley Austin. From the ramp to the boardroom, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies transforming the skies. Well, that was a fun discussion with Sarah Nelson. We thank her again for coming on the show. Uh, most definitely, and I hope she comes back again once she outgrows her shyness, Ben. Um, so, seriously, we appreciate her taking our questions and spending so much time with us. Now we'll be taking a couple of our listener questions. We love your questions, so please keep them coming via our mailbox at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts. Speaking of love, we also love our sponsors, including Aerodata. If you're in the air transport business, you need to know the name Aerodata. For three decades, Aerodata has helped airlines get more from their operations with its aircraft performance, weight and balance, and load planning tools, and more. Visit aerodata.co to learn more and see how the Aerodata team can make a difference for your air carrier operations. Ben, we've got some real geeky questions, but they're excellent ones this week. Our first is from Dan in Indiana. Hey, Ben and Chris, I'm guessing that you saw United is dropping Denver Flagstaff and Houston Texarkana and also LAX to San Diego. As so many spokes are reduced and removed, think about A, dropping Ithaca and Islip and Toledo. Does this slowly undermine the concept of the hub and spoke as some number of weaker spokes fall away, which in turn undermines the connectivity onward to everywhere? pulling down total passengers on even like a Boston to Denver or Boise to Denver. And then with the 50-seaters going away eventually along with their feed, do overall connecting passenger numbers decline due to the lack of the same, which then hurts the next lowest weaker markets? Well, this is a geeky but great question, Dan. Thank you. My thought is I wouldn't jump so far as to say the hub and spoke system is at risk or big trunk routes like Boston to Denver or even smaller routes like Boise to Denver, Kansas City to Denver are going to get really hurt when you cancel Texarkana and Flagstaff. Yes, those were flights into the hub. Yes, did people from Flagstaff and Texarkana connect all over the world? Of course they did. But when you look at the data, they connect like 0.7 of a person sometimes. And so I'm not suggesting there's a lot more the industry could cancel. I certainly don't have it out for smaller cities, but the role of places like Flagstaff and Texarkana and certainly flights between LA and San Diego. I mean, I remember back when I worked at Continental Airlines, Chris, we flew between Hobby and Intercontinental just for the feed within Houston. And that stuff has gone by the wayside largely. So I think this is um, much to do about not that much, to be honest. Airlines are always looking to tweak their schedules and they make big news about adding new service to Tel Aviv or new service to Las Palmas, right? But they don't 
shout it really loud when they close a city. But I think this tweaking is really smart to do. And it's really smart sort of post-pandemic to say what markets are really generating most of the traffic and which aren't. And let's do more where the people are. And let's do a little less in the markets that just aren't providing as much volume. So again, I'm not trying to pick on Flagstaff and Texarkana or Ithaca, Islip or Toledo, but those cities will all have service. They'll all maintain some level of service. You don't need all three of the big airlines and then once in a while a Southwest or a real low-cost airline serve them. You can have one of them pull out and still they'll do quite well. And then we've got a question from Rob in Honolulu who writes about pilot reserve systems and whether that is contributing to the pilot staffing shortage. Hey guys, love the show. I've been following your discussion regarding the pilot shortage and was wondering how much operational inefficiencies and labor issues have to do with it all. Any company would need labor on board to make it through these difficult times and to operate at peak efficiency. That doesn't seem to be the case for most airlines, given all the picketing right now. I, although I would take exception to that because despite the picketing, pilots are, and flight attendants are working hard and showing up for work. At the Wolf Research Conference in May, most of the major labor unions on the airline labor panel said there isn't a shortage, just that they're not being used correctly. The person from the ILA Pilots Association at American referenced a number of something like 40% are serving on reserve. So are higher reserves good for the company and bad for the employees and consumers, or what does that number indicate? I saw that comment. I thought it was interesting from APA. And clearly, pilots who bid lines, meaning, you know, they they choose from however the airline has them do that, which flights to fly given their seniority and their rights and their needs on the personal side. And then you have a group of reserve pilots who all of which are covered by the CBA or the collectively bargained agreement and the rules with which reserve pilots can be assigned to trips and the rules with which um, how many trips those reserves can take are all covered by the CBA. So the one bit of disingenuousness by the Airline Pilots Association was to say there's 40% on reserve, so American use those people better. But American can't use them beyond what they've negotiated with the APA and is outlined in the contract. Now, if American is not doing what the contract allows them to do, then that statement is exactly right. My guess is if American had responded, they'd say, we'd love to use the reserves more, but look at these five things in the CBA that shows you where we can't use them. And so I appreciate this question, Rob, and I think you said it exactly right that any company would need labor on board to make it through difficult times and to operate at peak efficiency. This needs to be a collaboration between pilots and management, flight attendants and management, mechanics and management and other groups of labor and the management teams as to how the airline can be most successful 
provide the highest pay and the best opportunities to everyone because there are things in contracts at every airline that both help the employee by protecting them in cases, but also constrain the company in terms of who they can schedule at what point. So I think to address this issue correctly, you'd need to hear all sides of the argument about what really is available to do. And certainly we should expect that every airline is doing what they can do within the contracts that they have negotiated. Well, time to shut down the engines. Uh, Let me give my first shout out to Alaska Airlines, which is celebrating its 90th anniversary this month. That's fantastic. And the management team did a really cool thing and gifted 90,000 miles to every one of its more than 22,000 employees as part of the celebration. That was a nice thing to do. And while it mimicked what Southwest did at their 50th anniversary, Southwest gave all their people 50,000 miles, 90,000 miles to an Alaska employee, I think is much better than 50,000 miles to a Southwest employee, not only because it's more money, but because... Alaska has some terrific airline partners. And when you work for an airline, you often get free or heavily discounted travel on that airline, maybe on a space available basis. But that privilege rarely extends to partners. And so having miles that would be accepted at places not only like American Airlines in the U.S., but British Airways, LL, Iceland Air, Latam, Singapore Airlines, Qantas, all of which are partners with Alaska, and there's a whole bunch more. That's a real value, I think, to Alaska employees to be able to fly essentially positive space when they need to on Alaska, or more likely take a trip to a place Alaska doesn't go on one of their many partners. So great thing to do, Alaska. I agree with that. And I've got to shout down, Ben. And if we have any fighting Irish from Notre Dame listening, please don't take offense. But if you visit the university's athletic page and go to www.und.com slash travel hyphen by hyphen air, you'll see the list of airlines serving South Bend Airport so you can fly to a football game. According to the university, South Bend Regional Airport is served by seven airlines, including U.S. Airways, TWA Express, (laughs) Northwest, ATA Connection, and Continental Express. So come on, people. You're a great university, but it's bad enough you can't get to the college football championship game, but it's been more than 20 years since TWA was acquired by American Airlines. So if you're an alum, get them to fix that website. That's really funny, Chris. I'm going to go to that site and see if they really have not updated that in 20 years. Wow. Well, with that, it's time to close the stand. So everybody have a good week and thanks for listening. And if you can book a trip on Northwest or U.S. Airways or Continental Express, please let us know. We'll see you (laughs) next week. Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding.
This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.